Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. As we can come together as services reopen, how do we continue to love our city well? How do we make sure that we don't just kind of write off the, the second half of this year and, and coast to the finish and think, oh, well, maybe we'll see Christchurch one to Jesus in 2022. Maybe we'll see Ototahi transformed next year. How do we embrace that God has got a call, that God has got a plan, that God has got a purpose, that God has power for us here and now? And so what I would love to do today is to continue that idea of what does it look like to love our city. If you're taking notes, uh, the sermon is titled The Secret Siege of Nineveh. Uh, which is the best sermon title I've ever used, but not a sermon title that I came up with on my own. It's actually a a title of a Timothy Keller sermon from 1993, but I figured 28 years between using sermon titles uh, is all right. I said that in the 9.30, but I I didn't know how many years, and I spent far too long trying to figure it out. So Reese, let me know afterwards that it's 28 years between here uh, and 1993. So there you go. Uh, The Secret Siege of Nineveh, if you're taking notes. We're going to read from Jonah chapter 3. I want to encourage you uh, this week, maybe read uh, through the book of Jonah. It's four chapters. It's quite easy to read. It tells a compelling and quite interesting story. So maybe have a look. We believe that as we read the Word of God, uh, something in us is better for it. But Jonah chapter 3, I'm going to read the entire chapter in the message translation. It says this. Next, God spoke to Jonah a second time. Upon your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh, preach to them. They're in a bad way, and I can't ignore it any longer. This time, Jonah started off straight for Nineveh, obeying God's orders to the letter. Nineveh was a big city, very big. It took three days to walk across it. Jonah entered the city, went one day's walk, and preached, in 40 days, Nineveh will be smashed. The people of Nineveh listened and trusted God. They proclaimed a citywide fast and dressed in burlap to show their repentance. Everyone did it, rich and poor, famous and obscure, leaders and followers. When the message reached the king of Nineveh, he got up off his throne, threw down his royal robes, dressed in burlap, and sat down in the dirt. Then he issued a public proclamation throughout Nineveh, authorized by him and his leaders. Not one drop of water, not one bite of food for man, woman, or animal, including your herds and flocks. Dress them all, both people and animals, in burlap, and send up a cry of help to God. Everyone must turn around, turn back from an evil life and the violent ways that stain their hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn around and change his mind about us, quit being angry with us, and let us live. God saw what they had done, that they had turned away from their evil lives. He did change his mind about them. What he said he would do to them, he didn't do. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, I thank you for, for these moments as we gather together. I thank you that, that as we come under your word, as we lean in with the expectation that you have something to say to us, that, that you do not disappoint. I pray that this morning it would not be me, it would not be my ideas, but, but that you would speak, that your voice would be loud, that today as we, as we lean into your scripture, as we draw our attention towards you, that you would become bigger in our lives, that we would leave here convinced of the fact that we met with you, the everlasting God, that we would leave better for it encouraged, called more into purpose and destiny. In Jesus' name, amen. So 
The, the, the book of Jonah kind of has three main characters, and, and, and I, I gave a bit of a, a summary of the book last week. I'll, I'll do it again, but, but probably one of the things you need to know about the book, and you might have picked it up in that chapter that we read, there was bits like, no one shall have a drink of water, right? Like not the men or the women or the animals or the herds or the flock, and, and we're so repentant that everyone's going to dress in burlap. Everyone's going to dress in the sackcloth, which represents mourning and repentance, even the animals. It's, it's kind of this, this intentionally over-the-top book which is meant to convey a, a, a message. Some would say, theologians would say, it's, it's kind of the biblical equivalent of satire. It's meant to pull out an over-exaggerated response so that we can look at it and see something of that response in ourselves. And, and so in this book, we've got three characters. We've got Jonah, I'm pointing, God, and Nineveh. Right, and, and Jonah we know. Jonah we talked about last week. Jonah is the titular, which is one of my favorite words to use this fortnight, character of the book. He's the book that the title is named after. And, and he's really a picture of our human nature, our brokenness and our selfishness. And then we have God. And, and let's not try and sum up God in one pithy little statement. Yeah, that would probably be an error on my behalf. So I'm not going to try and be like, God, here's a, a, a sentence that sums up God. Kind of in his character that you can't really sum up in a sentence. But, but as with all the other books in the Bible, in this story, he is the driving, redeeming force in the narrative, that he is at work for good. And then we have the city of Nineveh. And the city of Nineveh is a powerful, strong, corrupt city. It's actually the capital of the Assyrian Empire, who are kind of the new global superpower. And, and the first thing that we learned in, in our chapter that we read today about Nineveh is that Nineveh is... Big. You say big? Big. Does anyone remember those Mitre 10 ads? Big is good, right? In this case, Nineveh felt that being big was good because it gave them a significant military advantage. Nineveh was a big city, but it wasn't one of many big cities. It was one of the only big cities. In this day and age, there wasn't a scattering of cities all throughout the world. Most places where people lived were small. Cities, big cities in particular, cities that were so big it took three days to walk across them, were incredibly rare. But being a big city was very, very advantageous because people couldn't invade you. Right? Number one, you had enough resources to build walls and that kind of thing. But the second thing that was really convenient was you were so big, no one had an army big enough to encircle you to besiege you. No one could cut off your supplies because they'd cover the north, the west, and the east. And you'd be like, oh, we'll just get some, some food and some water and stuff through the south. And they'd cover the south. And you'd be like, well, now the north's exposed, right? And so the city was, was a military superpower in part because of its size. And, and yet the story that we read of Jonah is the story of a, an unwilling, selfish prophet, kind of a paradox, who overturns, who changes the city, which is meant to be impossible to change. The, the, Jonah walks into the suburbs of Nineveh and he declares this five words. It's five words in the Hebrew sermon. 40 days in the city of, of Nineveh will be smashed. The NLT translation, instead of smashed, says overturned. And we know that, that Jonah, he wanted the city to be smashed. He wanted the, the Assyrian Empire to be destroyed because he was invested in the military might and success of the Jewish Empire. And the Assyrians were the enemy. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, not because he was afraid of the, of the Ninevites. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he did not want God to forgive them because that would be damaging to his aspirations in life. Right? And, and, and so he comes to Nineveh and he, and he preaches a sermon. He says they'll be smashed because that's what he wants. But, but the word that is used in the NLT is, is overturned. 
which is maybe more accurate to what happened. Because God overturns the hearts of the people of Nineveh, despite the fact that Jonah preaches a ridiculously bad sermon. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at this story, at this chapter, and I want to look at what did God do? How did God use Jonah, an unwilling, uncooperative prophet, to save a city? And, and, and I'd like to apply that to what can we do if we are believing that we are not just here for ourselves, that we're not just a church that exists for the, the benefit of, it, of its members, but, but that we are an organization, unlike many other organizations in the world, that we exist for the benefit of the people who do not belong. That we exist to, to not just bring transformation in this room, but outside of this room. That, that Ototahi would thrive because we are here bringing God's light, bringing God's peace, bringing God's truth. If we can look at that, what could we find out about how God used an uncooperative, unwilling prophet to transform a city? That maybe if we would be a little bit better than Jonah, or even if we're just as bad that God would use us to transform the city that we are in. I've got two points today. Uh, I'm calling it God's two-part battle plan to overthrow a city that everyone thought was impossible to overthrow. If you're taking notes, my first point is God's purpose. Right, so, so like I said, I'll, I'll surmise the story. We know the story. God sends Jonah to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because, like we talked about, he hates Nineveh. So he's like, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to go the opposite way to Tarshish. He gets on a boat to go to Tarshish. As he's on the boat, a storm whips up. Long story short, Jonah gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a whale. Inside the whale, he repents. God's like, all right, I guess you've got enough time out in the whale then. The whale spits him back on dry land. And this is where we pick up in chapter three. Jonah has been delivered on dry land. And then it says, Next, next, God spoke to Jonah a second time. Now, I don't know about you, right? If we're looking at this from like a God's battle plan to, to overthrow a city, I'm not a military man, right? I've got no expertise in, in overthrowing anything. I can, I can knock over the, the Duplo that Ollie builds. That's about the extent of, and, and then accidentally breaking things. That's kind of my expertise in overthrowing, right? I have not... Uh, toppled any totalitarian regimes, anything like that. So this is not from my own expertise. But I would think if you had someone who had just done the exact opposite of what you'd told them to do in a military setting, effectively you'd just court-martialed them, right? That spending the time in the whale's belly, it's kind of a divine timeout. So you just put them in an extended timeout. They've repented. It doesn't seem like the wise thing to me to do to then turn to them and be like, all right, we're placing it all back in your hands again. Right? Like you've failed, you've let us down, but how about a second go? In fact, it's interesting because Jonah's not the only option in this time and moment. At the same time as Jonah was, was I was going to say ministering, but he wasn't really ministering, living, disobeying God, doing some nasty things, right? Being a bit of a sulk. We also had the prophet Hosea. Now, Hosea is, is living in a different part of the country, and, and he has an incredibly hard call. He, he marries a woman named Gomer, and, and it's a whole other story that we'll get to one day. But suffice to say, Hosea is like the opposite of Jonah, where Jonah doesn't do the, the fairly easy thing that God calls him to do. Hosea does all of the very hard things that God calls him to do. So surely if I was God, which let's just take a moment to be grateful I'm not, but if I was, when Jonah had let me down, not done what I told him to do, I would not have been like, all right, whale, spit Jonah back up next a second time. I would have been like, all right, whale, congratulations. You've got some protein in your diet. Keep Jonah in your belly forever, right? The book of Jonah ends now. And now I'm going to go and tap Hosea on the shoulder. I'm going to be like, hey, look, I know you've been having a real hard time. I'm going to give you an easier little thing to do, a bit of a morale boost. Go and preach to Nineveh. Unlike the rest of your life where it's really hard, they're going to turn, they're going to repent. It's going to be a fun time. That's what I would have done. But instead, God comes back 
to Jonah. He doesn't leave him in the whale. The book of Jonah does not conclude at then Jonah was thrown overboard and eaten by a whale. And then the moral of the story is not just don't disobey God. In fact, God uses Jonah. God comes through. He goes to him again a second time. In fact, God has a funny habit of kind of doing that, doesn't he? I wonder if you think about the apostles, who was the most inconsistent apostle? Maybe other than, than Judas. He's got some other issues going on than inconsistency. I would say probably Peter, right? And, and yet Peter is the one that Jesus left in charge. Peter is the one that, that ends up establishing the church. God called Jonah because as we concluded last week, God working through a person is not about the strength or the righteousness of that person. If we have faith in Jesus, we have all we need to transform the city because it's not about our capacity or our ability. It's about our God. We can have a faith that if we step out, God will use us. And it's, it's, the reality is that we see in this story, at least, and throughout the Scripture, is that our mistakes do not disqualify us. Our running does not count us out. God is good enough to give us all a next. God is good enough to speak to us a second time, a third time, a fourth time. Because the first thing that we need to know about God's plan to change a city, his secret siege, is that God calls broken people to do the supernatural. And he calls them by his grace. Right? We have a purpose. Our purpose is not earned. Our purpose is not something that we convinced God to give us. No matter how many times we've done the wrong thing or how insufficient we feel, God's purpose is not reliant on us. So even if we're like Jonah and we do the wrong thing, God comes to us with a next and a second time. My, my second point, and it's a short sermon today, but my second point in God's two-part battle plan to overthrow a city that everyone thought it was impossible to overthrow Second point, number two, is, is God's power. I, I spoke about it at the front, but, but that idea of loving sacrificially is, is more than just loving the people that it's easy to love. That, that love so often in our lives is, is a mix of who and what. That for some people, we are willing to do quite extreme things. Yeah, I used the analogy last week of, you know, if, if Ollie or Harriet wake up in the middle of the night, I'll go into their room and, and I'll rub their back. They're my children, in case there's, there's any confusion on that. You think I'm going to a stranger's house. Uh, I'll rub their back, right? Like I'll, I'll, I'll say, shh, and they'll go to sleep. Ollie likes to hold my ear. That's one of his, like, it's his comfort thing. So I'll, I'll sit there and he holds my ear until he goes to sleep, right? That's a loving father. You can all give me an ah. Oh, thanks, that's my, uh, that's my gratification for the week. Thanks, thanks. But if any of you, as much as I love you, if you rang me at 2 a.m. in the morning, you said, John, I'm having a real hard time sleeping. Could you come around and maybe heat up a hot water bottle for me, rub my back, tell me a bedtime story? Right? Chances are, in, in my natural self, shy of a word from God, probably not going to do it. Right? I don't mean to offend you. I'm really sorry. If you, if you need to leave, I understand. But, but love is a mixture of who and what. There are some things that we are willing to do for people that we are simply not willing to do for other people. But, but realistically, love is actually just tender emotions until it costs us something. Doing something that's convenient, that doesn't cost anything, is a nice thing to do. But, but I would suggest that it's not really in line with the biblical definition of love. 
And see, I think this is relevant because the strategy of God to transform a city is to have Christians love biblically, love extravagantly. That's why last week we talked about what could it look like for us to to go beyond and loving someone in a different way, maybe someone we don't usually love. We talked about the scriptural basis for loving others. And I want to put up a few more scriptures that, that just remind us of the fact that throughout the canon of scripture, especially in the New Testament, we are reminded again and again and again that a core tenet of who we are as Christians is love. Maybe the, the one that comes you know, most to a point for me is Jesus in that last one at the bottom in John chapter 13, where he says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, any of us who have been in church for long enough, kind of, we realize what Jesus is talking about when he talks about as I have loved you, right? That Jesus loved us so much that, that he did not pursue all the things he could have, but he, he embraced death and death on a cross for us. That's a significant love. And and as I was thinking about this, I I, I was reminded that this is actually the established historical basis of how God changes cities and empires. Let let me explain. A a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I had a, a, a rare moment of enforced stillness. I don't know if anyone's ever experienced this. I had mine, uh, I, I was having my second uh, COVID vaccine, and so I was in the waiting room at the doctor's, and they make you wait, right? And, and there's that moment, they make you wait for like 15 minutes, and, and I didn't take my phone in. Uh, and, and so, like, I, I felt naked. I was naked at the doctor's office. It was like a bad dream. Uh, and, and so, you know, you, you, you get the injection, and you go and sit down, and I had like a song on my head, five minutes, kind of the song and played itself out. And I was like, man. And again, I had my watch. I was like, I'm sure I've been waiting for like an hour. Right? Like they've forgotten about me. I like to my watch. I'm like, no, it's, it's been five minutes, Jono. You just, with your own company, not very good, right? And kind of made me realize, maybe I need to establish some more stillness and solitude in, in my life. It's an important practice. And, and so as I was just sitting there and just kind of thinking, I started thinking about, man, what unprecedented times we're in. Right? Like, this is crazy. And, and then just kind of into my mind drifted a, an article that I'd, I'd read in the last lockdown about the spread of Christianity in the plagues that, that were in the, the late Roman Empire, in the early church. And, and I was like, oh, maybe this isn't that unprecedented. And so I was like, I'm going to go and I'm going to find the article and I'm going to reread it. And as I was reading the article, I, I was astounded to, to remember that by 300 AD, 300 years after Jesus had died, half of the urban population of the Roman Empire were Christian. Right? Half of the urban pop, that's an incredibly fast spread of, of the faith in the gospel. And, and, and it had spread, and, and Christianity was not, when it initially spread, like the faith of, of the elite or the powerful people in society. The, the early Christians were, were slaves and street people. They, they, they were the, the subjugated ones within the Roman Empire. They were oppressed and opposed by the Roman Empire for most of the early church's life. And and yet this faith started to spread. They essentially overthrew the greatest nation on earth because the Roman Empire was not just an empire. One of their core beliefs was that Caesar was God. One of the reasons that the Christians were so uh, strongly opposed is because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. They said, no, no, Jesus is Lord. God is God. Caesar is not God above Jesus. All of Revelation is kind of this, this countercultural pushback against Roman ideo- uh, idolatry, really, of Caesar is God. And, and so when they refused to say this, that, that they, were, they were persecuted as a result. They were not in a position of power where it was kind of something that everyone was signing on for because it was a trendy thing to do, but somehow it still grew at this prolific rate. 
And Rodney Stark, who's a professor of sociology at Baylor University, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, which is a good book to read if you want to understand how did Christianity spread so fast, said that this happened because of a series of plagues, which just feels like a pertinent thing to be aware of, right, in our current cultural moment. Specifically, three plagues, the Antonine Plague, the Plague of Cyprin, and the Plague of Justinian. Now, these plagues were quite different to to where we are now, right? This, This was a pretty hard time to be alive. But every time there was a plague, they would find that the church would double or triple as a result. And it wasn't because people were afraid. I think whenever we read the Bible in, in kind of our, our modern view, we can be like, oh, maybe people were afraid that they were going to die and they wanted to make sure they're going to go to heaven. So, so they just kind of signed on just as, you know, like hellfire insurance because who knows if you're going to catch the plague. They're, they're, what, in, in this time, it, it's not like now in modern days where the, the, the opposite of being Christian is, is being an atheist or, you know, believing in nothing. Everyone had a faith. Everyone had a God. Everyone had some idea as to they thought they were going to, to this or to that when they died. It wasn't a fear of, of dying that pushed people into faith. Something else happened. And to paint a picture of what happened, we need to understand what the plagues were like. So I want to read you an account from, uh, from Rodney Stark uh, about the Cyprin plague. And I apologize in advance because it's kind of grim. But I mean, were we thinking we'd read an account of a plague and be like, oh, this sounds like a fun time? Right? Like, probably not. So uh, this is the account of the, of the plague. It says this. The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. People were afraid to visit one another. As a result, they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other, and half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets. For the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men became indifferent to every rule of religion or of law. And this is the bit that gets me. Many pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion. This is the moment in which the early church thrived. And the reason that they thrived in this moment is if we go to the, to the next slide, this is an account from bishop of, the Bishop of Alexandria named Dionysus of the Christian response to these plagues. He says, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. I don't know about you, I find that incredibly confronting. Because essentially what, what Dionysus is saying is that in the midst of these plagues, the Christian response was one of love. That someone's neighbor was sick, and rather than like everyone else, including the people in that house, rather than fleeing from them or, or casting your sick family member into the streets to fend for themselves because you're so afraid of catching the disease, they went over to their house and they said, how can I help? How can I, how can I look after you? How can I meet you in the middle of this need and this pain? And they cared for their neighbor. They nursed them back to health. And in the process, they caught the plague themselves. As a result, their neighbor lived and they died. Right? Christians in these times of plague literally laid down their lives for their neighbors. And amazingly, when the plague died down, Christianity kept on spreading. Which when you think about it, kind of makes sense. 
You know, it was thought initially when they saw the, the massive increase in Christianity throughout the Roman Empire that there must have been these, these huge, significant conversion events, like the day of Pentecost, when thousands of people are kind of gathered together and, and, and a message is preached and, and they all come to faith in kind of one moment and, and one day 3,000 are added to the church. So that, it must have just been a bunch of moments like this because how else do you explain this rapid increase in, in, in people identifying as Christian, especially when identifying as Christian meant you were going to be persecuted by the, the, the empire of the time. But, but actually, once they started to read these accounts of what Christians did in the middle of these horrible times, a, a counter kind of theory came out that's, that's gained momentum that actually it was the strength of the Christian witness. It was thought impossible for so many to convert so quickly until they started to read these accounts of Christians loving. And they went, well, actually, you know, if if someone laid down their life to nurse you back to health, if your mother or father is only alive because their Christian neighbor looked after them losing their life in doing so, but saving your mother or father's life, then a question arises in your mind of maybe this is something significant. When everyone else is throwing their sick into the street and the Christians are going to the sick and looking after them, it makes you pause and think something is happening here. See, I think it's beautiful that just as much as a miracle as, as, as Pentecost was and is of, of that moment in a massive conversion event, I, I love the consistent miracles suggested here of God's power expressed in Christian love. That when the world is throwing their sick into the streets, Christians are laying down their lives to nurse others back to health. I believe that that is a compelling case for faith. But I also find it quite uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but, but when I read that, I'm not like, yeah, yeah, Dionysus, come in. Come in. I'll, um, I'm one of your boys, right? Like, if... If, uh, if a plague is spreading throughout our city and um, I can nurse someone back to health and, and die in their place, 100% ready to do that. Totally keen. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm alone in that. But when I'm confronted with loving in that way, I'm like, man, that sounds really, really hard. How do I love like that? That seems like something that I would like to do, but when confronted with the reality of doing it, it would feel like dying to myself like going against myself, and, and the reality is it is. It's a purpose that we're not meant to be able to fulfill in our own power. The, the whole idea of being a Christian, of the Christian witness, is that we would do things that we cannot do in our own strength, that we would be a light in such a way that, that, that is more than we can do on our own, that we can only do it in Jesus, doing what we can, which isn't always the same as doing what we want to do. And trusting God with the rest. Should I get the band up? I, I believe that we need to be informed and sustained by God. Not by our, our accolades or our achievements or our abilities. Or by our failures, our weaknesses, or our mistakes. Let, let me say that again. We need to be informed and sustained by God. Not by, not by what we see as our strengths, and not by what we see as our weaknesses. We need to not think that we can do it without Him and not think that we're, we're so unable that we can't even do it with Him. But we need to be in a place in which we are Christians, which literally means Christ followers. And where else do we follow Christ if not to our own crosses? Right? We're called to sacrifice. 
And and our cross can be laying down our self-sufficiency or laying down our insufficiency. Whatever it is that we're holding in place of trusting in Jesus, whatever our reason might be that when God calls us to go to Nineveh, we, we don't want to. That when we put that thing down and do what we can, God does the miraculous. Because God calls us to love a city. If I was to sum up this message in in one sentence, I would say this. God entrusts purpose to imperfect people, working His power through them to do the impossible. Let me say it again. God entrusts purpose to imperfect people, working His power through them to do the impossible. That means that there is nothing that we have done or can do that excludes us from being used by God because His purpose for us is not reliant on who we are. And there is nothing that we can do or will do that will make His purpose come to pass in our own strength or weakness because it's His power that makes it happen. Church, the Word of God came to Jonah a second time. Maybe today you're sitting here and and, and you're acknowledging the fact that God is calling you. Maybe it's a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure if you can hear the call. You've ignored it for so long that that you've tuned it out. I want to tell you that it's still there. You still have a purpose. If there is breath in your lungs, if a heart beats in your chest, God has a plan for you. And when we step into that purpose, God meets us with His power. Maybe just as you bow your heads, as you close your eyes. I would love for you to ask yourself, what purpose... Is God calling you today? Maybe it's a new calling, something afresh. Maybe God is calling you back to something, something you've known, but you didn't see what you were wanting to see or it got too hard or or it was happening for too long and and you feel like you put it down. Maybe it's reaffirming. You know your purpose. You're aware of it. It burns in you. It's hard, but God is encouraging you today to say, yes, this is what we're about. This is what I've put you here for. Maybe you don't know what the purpose is. Today you're simply asking God, what is your purpose? And God would say, what is in your hand? Just take the next step. Bring something of the kingdom of heaven to earth. Make the world a little bit better. Love someone in a way that costs you something that reflects God. I would love if you would ask yourself these questions today. How can you step into your purpose? Maybe coming out of lockdown, what can you pick up? What can you choose to engage with to say, God, I can't do this in my own strength, but I refuse to see the second half of this year be the same as the first. If one thing is going to change, it's going to be me. It's going to be my intent. It's going to be my action. I will not remain inactive. God is going to move in my life because I'm going to make myself available, trusting in Him. Where in your life is there a neighbor that you can meet with love? Where in our lives are we others focused? Maybe it's starting to serve. Maybe it's opening your home. Maybe it's joining an e-group. Maybe it's reaching out to someone who you hope to see today, but you haven't. Choosing not just to, to receive from community, but be a, be a part of contributing. Just we want to love our city. We want to see it overthrown in a good way, overthrown in, in the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the, and the hope of God. We want, to see, we want to see shame. We want to see pain overthrown inadequacy overthrown, depression overthrown, generational cycles overthrown. That only happens when we do what we can and we trust that God meets us in it. We can only do that by embracing our purpose and partnering with God's power. Just heads about as eyes are closed. I would love to pray for everyone in this room. And in a minute, we'll go out of here with a song of praise.
God, I thank you that as many people are as in this room, that there are calls, purposes, plans, destinies, people who will only hear the gospel from our lips, places in which only we can shine your light. God, I thank you that that we do not disqualify ourselves from from call based on our mistakes, but, but that you continue to call us a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth time, that you are the God of the next. And I pray that for each and every one of us here today, we would take a step towards your purpose, a step towards your plans, a step towards your call. No matter how big or how small, that it would be a step and a step that starts a significant journey. God, where we are wondering, I pray courage. Where we are doubting, I pray that you would be with us in that doubt. Where we feel like we're not hearing you, I pray that we would wait in the stillness, hear your voice that we would do what we can with what we have, wondering maybe this is God and we'd see what happens on the other side. God, I thank you for for every person in this room that represents people who don't know you, that we are the answer to the question, who will tell them, who will change it? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. 